I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. Welcome to today's episode, everybody. I am joined by Dr. Jade Tita, who is a naturopathic physician, and he is the founder of Next Level Human. Um, Jade, I have been following you for several years. I love your podcast. I love your Instagram content. I know you have more resources out there that I have not even yet begun to dive through, but I really appreciate your evidence-based approach that you have. But one of the things that really made me want you to come on this podcast was kind of your focus on that mental and spiritual health. You know, you, you're clearly an expert in human physiology and metabolism and, and fat loss and performance, but I love that you kind of tie in that, that other aspect that really makes a complete holistic approach. Well, thank you, Aaron. You're so sweet for having me. And yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting ride. I really don't think you can um, really separate the other two, right? So to me, I go, it's psychology, it's, uh, you know, sort of physiology, it's personal preferences, and it's practical circumstances. So we have all four of those things that we need to kind of uh, round out sort of our journeys as individuals, and especially if we're talking about health and fitness. And so for me, I saw that early on and wanted to become an expert in each of those uh, sort of fields, because I think it's important. That's amazing. Now, what is you're wearing a t-shirt that says team human. So mm-hmm. can you kind of tell us before we dive into the today's topic, kind of what that is and what the listeners can take away from that? Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's funny. I didn't even realize that I was, I, I mean, I, I wear this a lot, but I didn't realize that uh, it would, it would make an impact, but uh, a lot of people see this shirt and they, they ask me about what it is. And it's, um, it's a very Kantian approach to sort of being a human. So a lot of people don't know what that means. And Immanuel Kant is my favorite philosopher, and essentially, um, he developed a uh, sort of ethics and morality about how to be as a human being. And I'll go through two of those briefly because it can get complicated, and this will explain Team Human. But he basically said that um, in order for us to be good humans, we needed sort of these sort of standard rules, and he called it the categorical imperative. And I'll give you two of those. There were really four, but I'll give you the two most important. The first one is never do anything um, that you would not will to be a universal law, which essentially means that don't uh, do it's, it's, it goes to this thing like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But it goes a little bit further. It basically says never do a thing that you would not will everyone else do that you would not say would be a good thing for all of humanity to do. So, for example, if uh, stealing, let's say like if I steal from Aaron, hmm. And I don't, I can't will this a universal law because if I did, then someone can steal from me, which can steal from them, who can steal from them. And then it becomes a contradiction and it becomes a huge mess. So that's the first thing he said. So all your actions, you look and you say, would I want, do I think the world would be a better place if all humans behaved this way? Mm. And so when you go about your day, you sort of look at it and kind of say, if all humans did this, like if all humans did not let anyone merge in traffic, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? If all humans, you know, just punched people if they were upset and got rude with people, or if all humans were racist, or if all humans were these things, would the world be good or bad? That's the Mm. first thing that he says. The second thing he says is never ever use another human as a means to your ends. So that means and ends gets confusing, but it essentially means don't use a person. Mm. Of course, that's even a little bit more confusing because right now, Aaron and I are using each other, right? She's using me to teach and learn, and I'm using her to teach and learn. And so as long as you agree, that's fine. So the real meaning of that is do not manipulate other people. Do not manipulate their reality. Do not lie, cheat, um, betray, bullshit, this kind of stuff to get your way um, by using another person. 
And so to me, team human essentially means that I'm going to live my life according to that honor code and essentially um, treat humans as ends in themselves. Aaron and everyone listening to this has her own goals, her own signature strength, her own belief system, her own way of doing things and her own experience. Mm. And so team human means I validate that. I uphold that. I don't want to make you me. I am uh, love that you are you. And I want to uphold your you-ness in a sense. And this is what team human means. And that by doing that, I believe we all sort of get to grow together. So it's a, a long-winded sort of way of saying it, but that's your introduction to the Kantian philosophy. <laughs> no, I love that. And I think, you know, religion can be a touchy subject for some people and spirituality. And I, I love that it's kind of a common ground for people to align on that sense. You know, one thing that always drew me to religion was that sense of morals and how can we, you know, come together and make the world a better place. So I, I, I feel like I want to be part of Dean Human. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that it is, it makes room for all of that, right? Religion, um, different beliefs, um, philosophy, spirituality. Um, I think they all sort of share some of these truths. I think Kant just described it in a way that, uh, you know, can really resonate and help us remember, okay, these are the things that we need to do. And it brings us, it brings us to a point about health and fitness too, by the way, it's kind of an, an interesting segue, right? Because mm-hmm. in our personal lives, I think we need to operate from first principles. In other words, part of the reason we all get confused and get anxious and, um, you know, sometimes uh, have anxiety, depression, and all these things or hurt is because we don't have for ourselves an anchor, an honor code that says, this is what I stand for. You know, Mm -hmm. right now we're in a very political time, right? With COVID and Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff. And people get really anxious on either side. And there's a lot of fighting back and forth and a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. But when we anchor ourselves and to be like, what do I actually stand for and have a code of honor and an, uh, a code of conduct, it, it, gets, it, it actually makes things simpler for us as humans. And the same mm-hmm. thing happens with health and fitness when we essentially say, what do I actually stand for mm-hmm. as it pertains to my health and my fitness? Just the rules that say, here's what I'm going to do. And what I would suggest is there is sort of a categorical, categorical imperative for nutrition just like there is sort of this Kantian categorical imperative of how to be as a human. And to me, that imperative as in nutrition is do what works for you and uphold what works for other people as an end in itself. And don't try to make people you and adhere to your nutrition philosophy and don't try to adhere to their nutrition philosophy. In other words, be a, a human who engages in health and fitness in a way that allows you to find your own unique approach to health and fitness. And to me, this is another sort of uh, first principle that we should adhere to. So you can see how the psychology and the physiology begin to interact here when we essentially say, here's what I stand for as an individual, psychologically speaking, and here's what I stand for as an individual, physiologically speaking. And this does take some education. So we'll get into that, right? We can mm-hmm. get into different parts of this education and different ideas that we want to try on, so to speak. But I do think it's an important conversation and it pivots right into health and fitness. And most people separate these two. Yeah, no, I think that's a a great segue into it, especially because of the topic that we're talking about today can get, um, I know for myself as a registered dietitian, there seems to be this, this, this definite divide of people who are, you know, very anti-diet and those who are, you know, promoting weight loss and, 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 you know, there's, there's not really that middle ground between some of these groups. And so if somebody comes on and starts talking about intermittent fasting and, you know, how can we just take that lens and say, okay, intermittent fasting, just like the ketogenic diet, just like the whole 30, just like gluten-free is not the right diet for everybody. And not everybody needs to be on a diet. And so understanding that they're like you said, the education is really key to it. But we're talking about a topic here that there's always going to be some nuances to it. And there's always going to be, you know, something that works for somebody that doesn't always work for another person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a, it's a really interesting way to talk about this because I do think intermittent fasting is one of these things that, um, has what I call structured flexibility to it. It's a term that I use a lot. And essentially what it says is that we can all have a structure that most of us, you know, would think it's a good idea to adhere to. And I would, I'm going to argue probably as we talk that intermittent fasting 
is a structure that our metabolism is uniquely evolved to um, deal with and mm-hmm. does very well with. However, uh, you cannot take Aaron's version of intermittent fasting and do it and expect for it to apply to everyone. You can't take Jade's version of doing intermittent fasting and expect for it to apply to everyone. But I'll make it and I'll just go ahead and launch into this if you're okay with it. To sure. me, intermittent fasting is, is uh, something that we all do. We have done since the, the dawn of humankind and it is built into our physiology. It's one of the most important things that we can do actually as a human. And let me explain what I mean by that. What I mean by that is that we humans are built, as many animals are, for feeding times and recovery times. Think about the dark cycle and the light cycle. There's a period of time where you are asleep and you are processing and regenerating and resting and recovering. This is not a time where you want to be engaged in activity, whether it's running around, whether it's mental stuff, or whether it's eating food. It's a time where you want your body to take all the stuff that you did during the day, eating, thinking, moving, all of this stuff, and process it. And so we are built for periods of time where we have, we're taking things in, and then we are built for periods of time where we're integrating that same stuff. So in a sense, we have to have periods with food and without food. We are built that way. In fact, if we just keep eating and eating and eating and eating and eating all the way into the night, you can see that this becomes a toxic exposure for us. And most of us, and this is a, this is a weird sort of thing to think about, but think about most of us are overfed. And as a result of being overfed, we're actually undernourished. And part of the reason we're undernourished is twofold. One, our bodies. Uh, when, when they are under assault and stress like that constantly, cannot extract all the nutrients needed from the food that we're taking in because we're sort of overloaded. That's number one. And number two, a lot of the foods we're eating are devoid of nutrients in the first place. Now, we, we all kind of have a sense of, oh, I get the whole foods with nutrient depletion, so I'm eating poor quality food. What we're all not always aware of is that when your digestive system becomes overloaded with calories and food even if it's healthy food this is not healthy for the body for example if your basal metabolic rate is 3000 calories let's say Aaron has has burned 3000 calories for the day or that's the amount that her metabolism needs and then she eats you know sort of 3500 calories and then on top of that adds two bowls of broccoli let's say those two bowls of broccoli are not going to be useful for her or healthy for her in the context of overeating and a lot of people don't understand this because they think, well, if it doesn't matter how much I ate. These are blueberries. This is broccoli. These are healthy foods. But on top of a calorie load that is already not useful for you, those foods can also become junk foods in a sense. And I'll give you the opposite end of that as well. And this is going to, you know, and you can push back against this, Aaron, as well. And those of you who are listening to this, but when you're starving, if you've been starving for three days and you haven't had anything to eat, and I give you a Snickers bar, in that context, that Snickers bar is, becomes a health food. It can actually save your life in that context. And mm-hmm. this is the part that we tend to uh, misunderstand about nutrition. And so we need to understand that part of getting and extracting health, healthy benefits from the food we eat has a lot to do with context. And so the context of having time where we eat and time where we don't eat is a really important aspect of this. Now, In my mind, everyone should be intermittent fasting for 12 hours per night at least. And this is the easiest way to begin this intermittent fasting protocol. Most people can do this because they're sleeping most of that time. And then there's a very brief window of time where they're awake and not eating. Notice how this is very different than the typical way people do it. They, if they wake up at six, they eat at six. And if they go to bed at 11, they're basically eating at 1030. This is what most people do. What I'm essentially saying is that if you want to understand the basics of intermittent fasting, just give yourself equal time with and without food. That's all it is. It's not it's it's as simple as that. And this is the simplest way to start. Now, we can get way more advanced and I'll see where you want to go with this, Aaron. Mm -hmm. But this is how this is built. And it's built right along with our circadian rhythms. It's Mm -hmm. built with the light, dark cycle when the light goes up, certain physiological processes kick in that make you more active. What's the point of that for you to go look for food? If we're all living on the plains somewhere out in natural settings, light comes up, we need to go and get food to get our energy. 
light goes down, that's time for us to assimilate all of that food. In the modern day, we're not doing that. Light goes down and we keep eating, 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 eating. Matter of fact, research shows that we get about a third of our calories or more in the hours after work up till midnight, most people, and that that has negative consequences for our physiology, Hmm. at least in the Western world. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I first heard about intermittent fasting, um, you know, many years ago, I heard about it and I thought, Oh, fasting, that sounds interesting. I immediately thought of, you know, Ramadan and people who traditionally were doing it as part of a religion or cultural practice. And when I looked into it, I was, you know, hearing people say, well, you have to not eat for 12 hours. And I remember, you know, I was working three jobs and I was in grad school and I was incredibly diligent about my sleep. I've always been very diligent about my sleep. It's something that I just naturally have been, you know, kind of my non-negotiable. And I calculated when I stopped eating and when I woke up and had breakfast and I said, well, wait a second, I guess I am intermittent fasting. I've been doing this already. And so, I mean, now as someone who specializes in digestive health, um, you know, I have a you know, large focus on digestion and how to improve that as a means to improve people's quality of life. And I always use the analogy that you cannot repair a highway when the traffic is still flowing. We need to replace about 18 to 15% of our gut lining that's damaged throughout the digestion process. So when I talk to people about this, it's the idea of, okay, so eight to 15% of your villi, the little finger-like projections in your intestines, if if eight to 15% of those need to be repaired every night and we don't have a break of eating or we don't have adequate sleep to repair that, then over time, we're putting ourselves at higher risk for things like leaky gut, which is, I've talked about it in the past, that situation where things are leaking from your gut into your bloodstream, and that can put you at a very high risk for autoimmune disease, food allergies, hormone imbalance, overall just general inflammation. So coming back to to the topic of circadian rhythm, I do believe that it is important to get our, our body to have that rest and rejuvenation. And then as you mentioned, let's look at what's physiologically happening in the body when we wake up and when we go to bed, the hormones that are released, you know, when we start to go towards the end of the day, our stomach produces less acid, melatonin, the hormone starts to kick in. So our intestines are slowing down. So to me, it would make more sense that if someone were to load most of their food during a certain period, it would be early morning, midday, and then towards the end of the day, the meals would start to taper off. This is obviously going to be very individualized. If I have an athlete who's waking up and running 14 miles, you know, a pre-bed snack or something like that. But it would make sense to me that the majority of someone's calories would probably be best metabolically and digestive-wise, health-wise, coming in the earlier half of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, not only that, what goes right along with that is you have essentially insulin sensitivity is highest in the morning, which means your body and your cells are most likely to absorb what you've eaten. And it's less at the end of the day. And we also have research that essentially says um, bigger meals earlier in the day tend to do better. Now, that being said, most of us, right. Um, and I'll give you, I'll give you uh, my own story with this is that, you know, being aware of this research, one, I'm one of these people who is naturally not hungry in the morning. I also naturally like bigger meals at the end of the day. And so mm-hmm. I have tried to, after reading research, and this is just a great uh, sort of segue into this whole thing of how do you make intermittent fasting work for you? So let's say I read this research or I read you know, a book on circadian rhythm and I hear Aaron or Jade talking about these things. And then I say, okay, I'm going to try to eat all my biggest meals now in the morning, what oftentimes will happen and what happened to me is not only do I eat a big meal at the beginning of the day, but then the habit of me eating a big meal at the end of the day stays. And all I did was eat double, right? And so what we have to do is we have to say, okay, here's the structure that Aaron just laid out, that Jade just laid out. And, but what are the first principles of intermittent fasting? And what I would say is that's not the first principle. It is uh, a sort of, uh, way to tweak it. So the first principle is, number one, give yourself equal opportunity with and without food. Number two, you know, if we look at this as a hierarchy, is then 
extend that window as much as possible. And then number three to me goes, let's work inside uh, this circadian rhythm if we can. So what this may look like is number one, I just start out going 12 hours and 12 hours. I'm going to commit to that. And I'm not going to worry what I'm doing. What's the biggest meal or the other thing. I'm just going to eat in a 12 hour window and I'm not going to eat for a 12 hour period of time while I'm sleeping. Number two might be, you know what? I'm going to move my breakfast to noon or I'm going to move my dinner back to six window a little bit more instead of now, instead of 12 and 12, I'm doing more 16 and eight. And I can take away, if I love breakfast, I'll leave that in. But if I love dinner, I'll leave that one in. And so what I'm doing is individualizing this approach. Now, why is this beneficial? It's beneficial because think about it. We still have to do two things when we're looking to lose weight. We have to balance our hormones and um, hormonal biochemistry, and we have to create a calorie deficit. And so those to me are, you know, the, the key goals here. Now, you know that you've got your hormones balanced if you're not having hunger and cravings. You know that you're creating a calorie deficit if you're actually losing weight. And so now you take this structure that Aaron and, and I are describing for you and you start to individualize what fits you, to what allows you to drop calories and maintain adequate hunger and energy and craving. So you're not chasing your hunger all over the place. You're not craving things like crazy. That might be for some of us, bigger breakfasts, smaller dinners. That might be for others of us, bigger dinners, smaller breakfasts. But to me, you can begin to play with this window a little bit. I would agree with you completely that in an ideal situation, we probably want bigger breakfasts, smaller dinners. But then this is why we go back to psychology, physiology, personal preference, and mm -hmm. practical circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. Because personal preference, I like bigger dinners, right? Practical circumstances, perhaps I'm so busy in the morning, I simply can't get breakfast in. And this is where a good coach and um, sort of understanding your own sort of physiological needs and psychological, uh, you know, personal preferences and psychology with stress and all that come in. And so people like Aaron and I can give you the general rules. We can even tell you the, the studies about, uh, you know, what has worked in research and what seems to make the most sense. But then you have to come in and be flexible with that structure to make it fit you. And so at least for me, I typically go first 12 hours and 12 hours. Then I might extend it. If, if someone's doing well, I might extend it to 16 hours without food, eight with. Now, here's how I know if it works. Let's say I put Aaron on this and I, I, this is how essentially I do it. And everyone listening, see if you can do this as well. Let's say Aaron's been doing the 12 hour fast and 12 hours worth of eating. And we haven't done anything yet with, you know, her, uh, you know, sort of nutrition. And then I say, let's now move you to 16 hours uh, without food and eight hours with, and then I might ask Aaron and I already, I already kind of know, cause she's kind of told us, I think, what does she, what meal does she like the best or where would she like to have her sort of biggest meal maybe? And maybe she's going to say breakfast based on what we've just, you know, sort of talked about. So, so I'm going to say perfect. Now she said dinner. I'm also going to say perfect because all I'm really worried about mostly is decreasing the time period. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then from there we see how she does. And as a result of having her only eat eight hours, is she craving and having excessive hunger or is this manageable for her? And if it's manageable for her and she's losing weight, then intermittent fasting works great. Now, for other people, what happens is they end up getting cravings and actually end up eating more and craving more as a result of trying to do something like this. Mm. And so this is where it gets sort of tricky. So the big question I know you and I get, Aaron, is, you know, intermittent fasting, should I do it? My answer to that is like, let's find out. It depends. <laughs> it yeah. depends. Exactly. Yeah. It's always almost it depends, right? So it's like, if by skipping breakfast, are you more or less likely to overeat and crave the wrong foods at lunch and dinner? Or if by skipping dinner, are you, uh, or having a very light dinner, are you more or less likely to have late night binging and cravings as a result of doing that? And that mm -hmm. tells you everything that you need to know in relation to this. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what book you read. doesn't matter what podcast or what research study or any of this stuff. What matters is when you do your own research study, you try this out on yourself, what happens to your hunger, energy, and cravings, and what happens to your results. And this tells you how intermittent fasting works. And then you can start getting even more, let's say, 
that works great for you. Then maybe you go to more of an OMAD diet, which is one meal a day, right? Where you have one big meal in the morning or one big meal at night, right? And you see if this works for you. But here's the problem, right? We all know, like if Aaron and I fast all day together and then we end up, you know, hanging out later that day, one of us might be fine and just get a chicken salad and a nice healthy meal. The other us might want to go to the cheesecake factory. And here's the problem with that. You can go to the cheesecake factory or you can go get a pizza or a burger and you can consume in one meal very easily your entire calorie allotment plus some in the modern day. Mm. We humans never could do that before. You'd be hard pressed to find 2000 calories to eat in one meal. Now we can get 4000, 5000 calories in one meal. And this is the, the issue. This is what happens with a ton of people. And it's why I oftentimes say intermittent fasting is more of an advanced tool at its later stages. You know, the 18-6 or the OMAD approach, one meal a day approach can really backfire or the alternate day fasting approach, right? These things can backfire on people because of the binge eating behavior and cravings that even if we were craving like crazy and want to binge, Aaron, you know, like back in, in the old days, you couldn't get those amount of calories anyway. So it wouldn't matter. You, you know, you just couldn't get the amount of calories that would make a difference. Now you can. So mm-hmm. these are all things that I would be telling people to be aware of. And I know it's a little complicated, but we can get as deep into this as you want in terms of tweaking and adjusting. Yeah. I, I think you bring up an interesting point too, is if you're someone who's considering intermittent fasting, I know personally, if I had a client who just signed on with me to work for three months, the first thing we're not doing is putting them on a fasting protocol where do you have your nutrition basics down? I mean, are you drinking enough water? Are you getting fruits and vegetables? Do you understand the basic nutrition of what your body needs? Do you have your stress under control? What does your relationship with food look like? You know, I think a lot of people, the thing that's appealing about intermittent fasting is that this is the idea that, okay, if I'm just diligent for, you know, eight hours and I just don't, or 16 hours and I don't eat, I can eat whatever the heck I want for that other amount of hours. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that, you know, as humans, it's normal for us to want to indulge and want to enjoy things. And, you know, we want to have our cake and eat it too. But I think it's important to look at your relationship with food and kind of what purpose food is serving in those situations when you're trying to evaluate why you would want to do intermittent fasting and if it would be an appropriate protocol for you before you're even, you know, playing around with it. I do see it as more of an advanced style of, you know, I won't, won't call it dieting, but I see it as more of an advanced protocol where someone who's implementing this should either have the assistance of someone who is very knowledgeable on nutrition and metabolism, um, but someone who also, like I said, has their fundamentals, their, their basic nutrition things like totally dialed in, they're really in tune with their body and they're able to work with either someone or they know how to get that feedback that you mentioned of looking to see if this is actually working for you. Because I've had clients come to me who have been intermittent fasting for you know months and they're, they don't have more energy. They don't have better digestion. Their performance in the gym has not improved, but they're still stuck in that protocol because they read it somewhere or because they heard it was the right thing to do but they're not taking that feedback from their body. And I always say your body is the best feedback that you can get. So it's, it can be tough to block out a lot of that noise that's coming from whether it be research or just, you know, diet culture or the media in general. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, very similar to you, if, if someone came to me and said, Jade, where should I start? They, they've never really done dieting or it's been a long time, you know, or they really want to understand a healthy lifestyle. Typically what I do is I go, Hey, 12 hours without food if possible. And then in there within that 12 hours, surprising to a lot of people, I have people eat small, frequent meals. Part of the reason I do that is because I want them to begin to understand how food impacts them and how their blood sugars fluctuate. And I want them to be in control of hunger, energy, and cravings. Then I would Mm. usually work backwards from there. Now, some people can skip ahead, but I like to, I, I, it looks like you and I have a, a somewhat of a similar approach because what I want them to do is just get in touch with how they are fueling their bodies and how, if they fuel their body correctly, they are going to be able to have better energy, less hunger, less cravings. And most people really don't understand this. So in the beginning, 
I'm really saying, hey, 12 hours without food, 12 hours with. And within that 12 hours with, I'm essentially having them eat frequently, frequently enough, at least three meals, but maybe even five, a meal, breakfast, a snack, lunch, a snack, dinner. Now, I'm not saying that anyone listening to this necessarily needs to do this, but this is my approach. And then Mm. what I began to do is I began to maybe take away the snacks. And now we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then from there, I may take away lunch or, or breakfast or dinner, sometimes lunch, if that's what people want to do, or shrink those down a little bit. And to me, this is the way that you begin this process. And I would say that most people never need to get there, to Aaron's point. Most people never need to get to this more advanced intermittent fasting approach. To me, I see it as you need to have a relatively flexible metabolism to do well without food. A a healthy metabolism should be able to go four to six hours without food and have plenty of energy. Where is it getting that energy from? Hopefully your fat stores. That's why you're burning it, right? Now, if it's a healthy, flexible metabolism, the longer you go without food, it should keep ramping up its fat usage and your brain should be happy and your body should be happy because it's using the fat on your body for fuel. However, if you take a rigid metabolism, one that's been sitting on the couch and not moving and not doing anything, and you try to now take the fuel away, what it does is it goes crazy, right? It thinks it's starving in a sense. And there's, there's, we, can, we can go through the biochemistry of this. It has to do with leptin. It has to do with insulin. It has to do with all these other things. Most of you don't care about that. All you need to know is if hunger changes, energy changes, cravings change, sleep, mood, exercise performance, and exercise recovery, as Aaron was saying, when these things begin to change, negatively, it means you have a relatively rigid metabolism. And by the way, you don't want a fast metabolism. You want a flexible metabolism. Mm-hmm. And so part of what Aaron and I are doing with her approach and with my approach is we're trying to take a, a, a more rigid metabolism and make it more flexible. Now, if you can imagine a frayed, frail, cold, and you know, um, you know, sort of frayed rubber band that you try to pull apart real quick, what's going to do? It's going to snap. And this is what a lot of people are doing when they go from couch potato to intermittent faster. And so it's really interesting hearing your approach, Aaron, because mine's very similar for most people who have never done this before. I go, I don't, I want to kind of do this with the rubber band, get it warm, and then I can begin to stretch it out. Plus, Mm -hmm. I want to make your rubber band robust and strong. One of those ones that you can literally throw all over the place and stretch, you know, to the limit and they, they don't break. That's the approach that we want. We do that by getting there slowly. Very few people, some can, by the way, but I've seen very few people be able to go from couch potato, non-movement type of person, right into intermittent fasting and have it not snap their metabolic rubber band. And so what we want to do is we essentially want to ease into this for most people. Now, if you're someone who's like, you know what, Jade, Aaron, I'm, I am uh, I'm, I'm pretty advanced at this, though. I've been doing this stuff for a little while. I'm like you and, and Aaron. I mean, I, I work out. I do this. I want to try intermittent fasting. I'm already moving. I'm already doing these things. Then for you, I would say you're probably operating with a more flexible metabolism and a less rigid metabolism. And then you can begin to try. But I would still say ease into it. Go a week 12 and 12, right? And then go you know, a couple days, 16 and 8, and see how you do. And then eventually move to an alternate day fasting uh, regimen, if that is something that you want to try, or a one uh, meal a day. And I'll just, just so everyone knows, here, the, what we're talking about here is there's several different ways to do this. Simplest way is 12 hours, 12 hours. Next, more advanced, is 16 and 8. 16 without food, 8 with food. That's the and most could, popular, I would say, wouldn't you? That it's the most really popular. Like, yeah. Yep, they really like it because it's pretty easy. You go, all right, well, I just skip one meal, basically. Mm-hmm. But then you can move to a more, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, OMAD approach, which stands for one meal a day. You could even go even further than that, which is now alternate day. And then some people would do like a five, two, where it's like they eat normally during the week. And then they take the whole weekend where they essentially fast. And what's interesting about this, by the way, in the research on fasting, almost all of the research is not pure fasting. Almost all of it is 300 to 500, may up to 800 calories in that fasting window, and they call it a fast, Mm. right? And this is where you get some of this fasting mimicking diets and things like that, where you are getting some some calories. And so um, the reason I bring that up is because there's two different ways you can approach this if you have an inflexible metabolism. And by the way, you know you have an inflexible metabolism if when you miss meals, 
your hunger, energy, and cravings go crazy, or your performance suffers, as Aaron alluded to. So there's two ways you can adjust this. One way is start with the 12 or the 16, go slow. The other way you can do this is within your fasting window, you can eat small amounts. So for example, in the 16-8, you have a lot of people who put a little cream in their coffee or a little collagen in their coffee with their cream. This isn't true fasting in a sense, Mm. but it's very low calories, whereas you might be consuming 600 calories for breakfast. Here you're consuming 100 or 200. You're still getting some of the benefits because to Aaron's point, and by the way, I love that analogy, Aaron, the analogy of the highway, right? It's less cars. The, the construction workers are, can, can, can you know, basically repair the potholes and do all that on a road that, is not, that only has a few cars traveling down it, right? Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. can't do it on these can close one lane. <laughs> it can close one lane. It's not going to be that big of a deal. This is what we're essentially doing if we give 200 calories maybe for breakfast versus 600. But this is the way that I think um, that you do this. And then there's certain tools you can use like cocoa powder and coffee and non-calorie substances that sort of just take the edge off, right? You just have Mm -hmm. to be careful with some of those because some of those can trigger cravings later. For example, some people um, can do diet sodas and gums, which is not something I would recommend personally because I'm more of a naturopathic physician. It's a bias. However, I've seen people do very well on that. So I'm not going to tell you definitely don't. It's just that for many people, those that when you taste sweet on your mouth, Hmm. your body expects sweet. And then sometimes for a sizable amount of individuals, the brain is pinging eat, 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 eat. So I'll stop here and see what your approach is there, because maybe it'll be helpful for people for us to talk about some of the things that they can do between, you know, when they're not eating to help, you know, keep their mind off of it. I'm just curious what you do in that regard or wherever you want to go with it. Yeah, I I mean, I, I'm definitely biased in the sense of, um, you know, I'm very picky about ingredients and things like that. But I also have clients who, you know, consume artificial sweeteners and things like that. And they're perfectly healthy. I have, you know, no issue with that. I'm not going to tell my clients to reduce those things if it's not realistic or part of their lifestyle. Um, a, A point that I also wanted to bring up, I think we're talking a lot about maybe people who are looking for improving their body composition or for weight loss, which I think is one of the main reasons why people gravitate towards um, intermittent fasting. But there's, there's other reasons why people intermittent fast, whether it's improved cognitive function. And some people will mention that when they are in that fasted state, they notice they are more clear thinking, they are more focused, they have less, you know, kind of the, that nervous energy, they have more of a steady, clear energy, And then autophagy, which is programmed cell death, which is basically preventative for cancer. And so weight loss and body composition aren't the only reason why people do intermittent fasting. And I think that's also an important point to bring out, you know, like I mentioned, digestive benefits or, you know, hormone balance or things like that. Those are also reasons why someone might be gravitating towards intermittent fasting for you know, you're that client that you put, you know, artificial client that you brought up of someone who's been like, you know, I've got my nutrition, I've got my fitness, I want to take it to the next level, I want to start experimenting. That's when we get into the idea of, you know, maybe longevity and improving your health long term and the cognitive function. So I think that's an important distinction to make, because I think we have been talking a lot about, you know, the benefits as they relate to weight loss or body composition changes and, and part of that is definitely the repair, regenerate mechanism, but also the mechanism of caloric restriction, right? Which we know from just a basic standpoint that, you know, less calories in will lead to weight loss, will lead to better markers of things like blood pressure and, you know, cholesterol levels and, and what have you. So if I have a client who is doing intermittent fasting and they're doing it for the health, like true health benefits, then I'm saying just drink water while you're fasting. You know, water should be the only thing. I wouldn't even throw coffee in there most of the time. You know, I think that if, if we're truly fasting to get the optimal benefits out of it, then why try to, you know, to occupy our mind? I would say pick a day and do it when you have some something, you know, busy, maybe you're working all day, wouldn't do it on a weekend when you're just sitting around, you know, twiddling your thumbs. Um, that would be my suggestion for a client who's looking to, to do that in a sense of if they really truly want to do it the, the way that um, to get the maximal health benefits out of it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I really like, and I agree with everything you're, um, you're saying right there. And it, and it brings up another important point about this is that if you are somebody, right, who's doing this for health benefits versus weight loss benefits, oftentimes people will get a little bit confused with what do I do with exercise and intermittent fasting, right? Because mm. they're just like, well, isn't it healthy? Shouldn't I move? Or if they're trying to lose weight, the, the typical way of doing that is, hey, let's just take in as little as possible and let's put out as much energy as possible. And one of the things that I think is important for people to understand is that uh, intermittent fasting is uh, beneficial right up to the point where it doesn't stress out the metabolism. And there's a bell-shaped curve of that, right? So being without food for a short period of time does uh, something very specific to the hormones in the body. So one of the things it does is it lowers insulin, and it raises human growth hormone. And as long as it's short-lived, you don't get a huge cortisol spike as a result. Mm. And so this tells us we don't really want to go to, because cortisol is one of these hormones that can be beneficial. And, and actually, here's, here's an interesting just sort of aside here. Intermittent fasting short duration has the same hormonal profile as short duration, high intensity exercise. Mm -hmm. Cortisol does go up, but it goes up with human growth hormone and insulin goes down and adrenaline goes up, right? So there's this nice mix. A lot of people think cortisol, the stress hormone is a fat storing hormone, but not when it's socializing with human growth hormone. And it does that in, in high intensity training. And it does that also with short duration fasting. However, once you take short duration fasting and add high intensity training on top of that, or you fast for a long period of time, cortisol starts to dominate more than these other hormones might. And what happens then? Hunger, energy, and cravings go out of check again. And so one of the ways that you can tell whether this is working for you is measuring hunger, energy, and cravings, and also realizing that I probably don't really want to be doing super intense stuff on the days that I'm fasting. Walking is probably enough for most people because walking synergizes with that walking lowers cortisol and it's not going to interfere with the human growth hormone push and so mm -hmm. one of the best ways that you can synergize movement with fasting is walking this is one of the best things to do it simultaneously sensitizes the body to insulin and lowers cortisol to a degree and so if you are going to fast in my mind you don't really want to be doing a lot of intense exercise on those days. Walking would be best. Now, some people can tolerate it. How do you know? Well, hunger, energy, and cravings, exercise performance, exercise recovery stays in check versus it doesn't. And by the way, here's an interesting thing, and I'd be, love to hear what you, you think about this, Aaron. Um, sometimes what you do on Monday can influence how you feel Tuesday and Wednesday. And so you have to get very much in tune with, okay, if I do like a five, two fasting regime, which for those you don't know, is like I eat for five days and I fast on the weekends. Let's say, let's say you're doing it for health benefits, like Aaron talked about, and it's just a water-based fast, right? Now, if you're exercising on the weekend too, that probably will not work for most people like you want it to. And you also have to be like, what happens on Tuesday and, uh, you know, sort of Wednesday, are you binging and are you going crazy as a result of those two days? And so you need to pay attention to that. The final thing, well, let me get your thoughts on that, Aaron. Then you know what I think you and I should talk about before we let them go is we should talk about how to break a fast because obviously the food choices in that, you know, after a fast can definitely determine whether that fast worked for you or not. But I just want to hear your thoughts on, on sort of what I just said as in regards to movement and exercise. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you know, in terms of what is the goal of exercise, um, if it's for mental health, you know, then I think walking would be something that, like you said, it lowers cortisol. We have, that, we have research to prove that. Um, if your goal is to build muscle, um, as you mentioned, the point about the human growth hormone, it, people should understand that that hormone being elevated is positive because that's going to help you maintain muscle. And so we, we want that scenario. I think that in terms of the research that we have on performance and ketosis in general, I would be weary to, to recommend that anybody in, include any sort of high intensity training or, or training that is dependent on their performance improving on during a period of fasting. 
I think it could really interfere with those goals. And before we, we wrap up with that, the point that you just mentioned, I want to talk about who it's not appropriate for. And I especially work with a lot of females and I don't know what it is where doctors are feeling that it's okay for them to just be generically recommending intermittent fasting to people left and right. But I've been seeing a large spike in this in my, my practice, but Um, you know, female hormones make things a little bit more complicated because in the research, we see that males, their hormones, their testosterone is really not impacted by fasting. Whereas females in a period of famine, their FSH and their LH are suppressed. Mm -hmm. And these hormones are really important for the production of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone And so if your intermittent fasting is leading to a place where your body is perceiving it as a stress, this could be due to your hormonal profile. It could be due to you might have a low BMI or low body weight, or you just might be someone who is very high stress. Your cortisol levels are already dysregulated. Maybe you're trying to get pregnant. You know, there are certain situations where intermittent fasting is just not appropriate for you. Um, so I just also wanted to, to make sure that we touched on that. Yeah. And here's a little hint for women as well. Estrogen, when estrogen is dominating in the menstrual cycle, which it's a little bit tricky, but during the first two weeks and really the, really you can extend that out to three weeks in the first two weeks, estrogen is dominating over progesterone, but in the middle week, the week after ovulation and before the premenstrual week, uh, estrogen is still high with progesterone. So fasting is useful, most useful for women, or I should say most tolerated by women when estrogen levels are either dominating or at their highest. And so you really want to get in tune with this. Uh, To me, doing uh, fasting during the premenstrual week when estrogen is falling and progesterone is dominating is not the best time to do it for most women. And so you can fool around with, and I've done this plenty with women, intermittent fasting at certain times of the month if you're a menstruating uh, woman. Also, keep in mind, if you're perimenopausal, mm. intermittent fasting can be um, extremely tough to do with perimenopausal women because estrogen is just jumping all over the place and progesterone is kind of flatlined. And so you have to, uh, as a woman, what I like to say is the female metabolism is far more refined than a male metabolism. And it makes sense because women have to um, sort of bear and rear children. And so their metabolism is a little bit more fine-tuned to the amount of fat they have on their body, which Aaron alluded to, and also to these uh, sort of fluctuating hormones in the menstrual cycle. So one clinical tool this first two weeks of the menstrual cycle, day one being the first day of bleeding up to ovulation, is probably the best time to do intermittent fasting. And uh, maybe the best time would be the week right before ovulation when estrogen is sort of at its highest without a whole lot of progesterone around. Now, this is a guess and a theory. We would need to study this, mm-hmm. but I've done it enough with uh, in my clinical practice to know that uh, women tolerate all forms of stress usually better during this period of time. And I think we have enough research to say they take on stress a little bit better. But I, I feel like you made a really astute point, and most people don't understand that, that, that the female hormones, the, the hypothalamus, pituitary, gonadal, hormones of a woman, FSH and LH, are dramatically impacted by stress more so than men. They've actually shown just very short periods of time and calorie restriction for women can lower these hormones. And the other thing that I think is tough for women is that the way the, the, the female fat stat works is it's far more sensitive. You might be tw- low 20% body fat and you might want to get to 15% body fat. And this depends on the woman, but your metabolism might be like, you're lean enough. And so one of the other things that happens with women is they'll lose menses and libido at varying body fat percents. Whereas men don't start losing erection until they get really low in body fat. Women can start losing uh, libido and menses even in the low 20% body fat for some women. Mm -hmm. And it's just an interesting sort of thing that I think women need to calibrate versus men for sure. Yeah. And I'm going to do a whole episode on this um, in the next coming weeks with um, a really wonderful woman who wrote a book all about um, uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea, which I know you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and this just really comes back to both of our points about how 
you know, you really need to, you like before you start cycling with intermittent fasting and your hormones, you need to understand your hormones to begin with. You need to understand what your cycle looks like, what happens with your energy and your cravings and how you can be programming your exercise with your hormones before you even start to think about intermittent fasting. So this just, that it really comes back to that point of getting that groundwork of understanding your body. You're on this earth for, you know, so amount of time that it would be a disservice for you not to tap in and start to listen to the feedback that it's giving you if you're looking to improve your health. Yeah, absolutely. And the final thing I'll say here is that when you, when you end a fast, it's really interesting. Your brain, they've shown this in research on mice, and it's definitely going to be in humans as well. Your brain is primed to enjoy food more. We all know what it's like when you haven't had sugar or you haven't had food, and then you have that first glass of wine or that first bite of dessert or that first bite of something palatable. And it's almost like an orgasm. It's just so intense and, and uh, you know, sort of like, oh my God, I want more of that, right? Here's the thing that happens. You can essentially, when you eat this way, um, highly palatable foods, foods rich in salt, fat, sugar, starch, and alcohol can basically ping your brain and turn that meal into a hypercaloric, you know, sort of state for days. You basically mm. go into continuous meal and you're craving this. And this is one of the reasons why, a hidden reason why intermittent fasting doesn't work for a lot of people, because no one has ever told them that when you end a fast, even if it's a day fast, you should always end with blander protein, fiber, and water-rich foods mm-hmm. because you want it bland so you don't ping these centers in the brain and you want the protein and fiber and water to suppress the hunger. This is what helps you from going off binges. This is key because many people do intermittent fasting and come away from the experience now having a binge eating you know, sort of situation where they're just like, what happened to me? And Mm -hmm. it's simply because no one ever educated them on how to end a fast appropriately. So one of my go-tos on this is just to always end any fast, even if it's a 16-8, right? Where it's just like, and and you are eating during the day, but your first meal is at lunch. Or if you're doing an OMAD approach, one meal a day, your first meal should be heavy in greens, bitter greens, fiber-based stuff, and protein-based stuff. A whey protein shake, a, a, a big salad with chicken, you know, basically something relatively bland. Do not end it with a big boo-boo burrito or pizza or a burger or even any any healthy food that's highly palatable. Stick to bland, protein-rich, fiber-rich, water-rich stuff. If you're a vegan or vegetarian, no problem. Just don't go starchy stuff. Go lots of vegetables. This is the way you want to end your fast to save you from this binge problem. Mm, yeah, I uh, my typical go to recommendation for a meal of breaking a fast is exactly kind of what you said, usually like some sort of leafy green salad or some lightly, you know, steamed greens with either a nice protein that's, you know, not anything like some charboiled chicken, like something that's cooked lightly, it's not, you know, charred protein, it's some sort of like baked chicken breast with a little bit of olive oil or some tofu, something like that, really simple. Um, also for the, the benefit of your gut health, as you're asking your gut to start to take that in and it's in that rebuilding phase. I mean, the, the benefits really don't happen necessarily when you're fasting. It's they happen when you start that refeeding process. So I think that's, that's an excellent point. Thank, thank you. Yeah, for And, and to in. expand on your analogy, think about it like this, right? So the roads have just been repaired. They've just laid down wet paint. You don't want to like, you know, be driving cars all over that wet paint because then you destroy the road again, right? Now, but now there's no lines on the road. So just ease into it, let the paint dry, then ramp up the traffic flow. Yeah. So I typically leave with three major takeaways for the listener, like practical advice for them. And we can obviously come up with these together. Um, what would you say is like your number one takeaway for this topic from intermittent fasting? Yeah. So number one, this think about the, the the most important aspect of this is that intermittent fasting isn't one thing. It's a sort of hierarchy of things. So start slow. Remember that you don't want a fast metabolism. You want a flexible one to get yourself more flexible. You start with the structure of 12, 12 and eat, you know, sort of ease your way into that. That would be sort of the first thing. Second thing is make sure that you when you get more advanced, you're essentially paying attention to hunger energy cravings and the kind of results that you want. And when I say hunger, energy, and cravings, Aaron and I covered a lot of stuff. We covered hunger, energy, cravings. We covered sleep, mood. 
We mentioned performance exercise, performance and exercise recovery, libido, erections, menses, also signs and symptoms, gas, bloating, all these things. You want to say, are they getting better or worse as a result of intermittent fasting? And then what are my results on body composition? Am I maintaining or and am I, uh, or am I losing? You want that sort of approach. And then the final thing is know how to end appropriately, right? So you want to essentially end that fast in a way that's not going to cause you to binge later because we think that calories and all that stuff works day to day. No, the metabolism is looking at that, that over weeks and months. And so if you do an intermittent fasting on the weekend and it causes you to overeat overall for the rest of the week, that's not beneficial for you. So make sure when you do that intermittent fasting, you eat bland, protein, fiber, water-rich foods, ease into this thing. You'll get results on this health-wise and body composition-wise so long as you don't go from very low calorie to very high calorie. What you want to do is go very low calorie to normal calorie, then back to very low calorie, then to normal calorie. Those are my takeaways. How about yours? Those are excellent. I I think I'm just going to kind of take yours and say, I agree with those, say ditto. And then I would say, know that it's not for everybody. Know that if you have a low BMI, like less than 18, or even just a body fat composition that is not where your body wants to be in a healthy state, um, if you have a history of disordered eating, if you're a female who already has hormonal imbalance, if you are a male or female with an unhealthy relationship with food, or you don't have your basics of nutrition covered, lay the foundation, address those things before you get excited about the, the research or the promises of the, the benefits of intermittent fasting. And, and be flexible. You know, that saying be, what is it, consistent with your approach and flexible with your methods, be flexible. Nutrition is all about, you know, like Jade said, you have to be, you want a flexible metabolism, not, you know, not focusing on just one way or the highway. And that's, that's the mentality that you want to bring in when it comes to anything, nutrition or fitness. Love it. So good. Yeah. So what is your favorite childhood memory of food? Uh, this is all right. So I grew up in an Italian family, right? So like food was like everything. And I also grew up, uh, you know, in sort of a lower middle-class family. So it wasn't like, you know, food, we could just eat whatever we want. So my my favorite and most ridiculous and embarrassing story is me and my two brothers literally getting in the fist fight over the last slice of pizza on the table. This will tell you a lot about some of my issues with food, like literally getting in a fist fight and getting sent to our rooms. And like, you know, this was, this is sort of my life. So, and by the way, I'll say this is a final thing, Aaron. It's such a good question, right? Because I do think um, I have this concept, I do a lot in personal development, and I have this concept called seed stories. Mm. These are the stories that plant seeds that you're not even aware of that these seeds grow into potential issues, right? So one of my seed stories is there's not enough food, I need to eat everything on my plate. And um, I always like whenever I'm super hungry, I order way too much. And then I want to eat all of that. These stories we have to be aware of. And you can see mm. how this pizza story is like, yeah. I better eat the pizza as fast as I can, because if not, my brother's going to punch me in the chest, you know, or whatever, <laughs> if I try to eat the last slice. But we all have these kind of stories. And we do have to begin to dismantle these stories. It's fine. There's plenty. You know, um, I don't need to rush this. Like, you know, there's other things that are enjoyable besides food. There's other things that are relaxing besides food. There's other ways to show self-love besides food, right? Mm. So all these stories, I think, are uh, really important, which is why I I love that you asked that, because it speaks to something that um, is really important for us to understand around nutrition. And it's not just about the food itself. It's how we think about and the stories we've written about food that make a big difference for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I would love to have you on for like an entire episode on that because let's do it. This is fun. Let's do it again. Especially that scarcity mindset, because I know, I mean, even same growing up and, and it wasn't even necessarily because I didn't, I was afraid of, you know, not having a next meal or anything. It, it stemmed even further back of to my grandfather growing up with 11 brothers and sisters and so that, that mindset and that relationship with food actually carried on to, to me as a generation and also can very much understand that and have struggled with that of, okay, I don't have to eat all of this or, you know, this is, you know, 
anyway, I digress, but that's very oh, funny. I'm picturing so you good. like, and your brother <laughs> fighting over the pizza. And that is just, that's, that's too funny. What a good, by memory. the way, that happened several times. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that was not a one-time memory. Yeah, that was not a one-time thing. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. I want um, the listeners to know where they can find you, um, whether it is your Instagram handle. I know you have an excellent website with all your resources. Can you just share where people can find you if they want to get in touch with you? Yeah, Instagram at Jade Tita. Feel free to DM me there. It takes some time to get back to you, but I'll do my best. Um, JadeTita.com. And then I have a podcast called The Next Level Human Podcast. It actually gets into a lot of what Aaron and I discussed actually here. We discussed a lot of personal development stuff. So if you're interested in the stuff, the Kantian philosophy type stuff, that my, my uh, uh, sort of podcast does that stuff, as well as metabolism. And you're so, so genius. And uh, it was just a pleasure to, to talk with you. So thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, thanks for coming on. I know you've been on the road and you've been busy. So mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to join us. This was such a fun conversation. For sure. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me to improve your health and get to the root cause of why you aren't reaching your health goals, please visit nutritionrewired.com where you can also find my book, Rewire Your Gut. This is a great resource for anybody who's looking to improve their health and a really great place to start if you are kind of confused about nutrition and gut health and you're looking for some recipes to make that change really delicious. So thanks again for tuning in. As always, don't forget to share the health.